Hey, you're listening to a sermon from Ketchikan Church of the Nazarene. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about our church, you can visit ktnnaz.org, visit us on Facebook, just search Ketchikan Naz, or you can download our free app from the iPhone store or the Google Play store, just search Ketchikan Naz. Thanks for visiting. Hope the Word of God speaks to you today. Is how I spelled it. So don't uh, don't check me for spelling. Uh, but you may find Joshua chapter six in your scriptures. We will be there throughout the course of the message today. Um, we are going to read it in chunks uh, so that we can uh, best understand this story. I know I feel like that too sometimes. <laughs> no. and that's real life right there. I'm going to put this down here. Um, okay, so before we actually dive into uh, Joshua chapter 6, I want to give a brief little bit of history um, because we're picking at some Sunday school stories that we may or may not be super familiar with. And even if we're familiar with the story, we may or may not actually know the history behind the story. So tonight, or today we're going to tackle the story about Joshua and the wall of Jericho. But a little background. Um, a long time ago, there was a man named Abraham. And Abraham uh, was called from his home by God, and God said, just take everything that you have and everything that you know and pick it up and follow me into a completely unknown kind of circumstance. I want you to follow me to a place you've never been, to a people you've never met, to land you've never seen. And Abraham's like, well, how will I know when I'm there? And God's like, I'll let you know when we get there. So Abraham set off on this journey that was completely unknown to him. And in the process of that journey, God made a promise to Abraham where he said, I'm going to make your descendants more numerous than the sand on the beach and the stars in the sky. There are going to be more of you than you will ever know how to count or ever be able to count. And so Abraham went off on this promise with God. And this promise was for his children's children's children, right? These multitudes of people. And the promise continued, not just that Abraham's descendants would be many, but that they would get to inherit this land that he was going to, this beautiful land that Abraham was going to see, would one day be the promised land for his descendants. And so over time, um, God's promise came true. Uh, Abraham's descendants grew and grew to the point that they were more numerous than the sand on the ground and the stars in the sky. And um, unfortunately, while they grew in number, they also grew in sin, okay? So they, uh, they multiplied numerically, and they multiplied in ways that we shouldn't multiply with our hearts, things that are sinful. And, and because of their sin, a lot of things happened in the course of the life of Israel. But ultimately, they began to lose their unique identity as children of God, called to be holy and set apart and different than the rest of the pagan world. And so, um, as they lost their holy status, their holy nation, their holy children, giving into pagan worship, forsaking God, embracing sin, um, God used the nation of Egypt to judge Israel, as it were. It's time before the judges, but this is in essence what God was doing. God put Israel into slavery under the hands of Egypt. And so for 400 years, this multitude of people, the promised descendants of Abraham, were enslaved from Egypt, and we're familiar with this story, right? Moses and Egypt and the slavery and so forth and so on. Now, um, God sent Moses to free this people group, this children of God, this multitude, the descendants of Abraham. God sent Moses to free them from Egypt and to bring them to the promised land. So 
the idea was, let's leave slavery, and let's become free, and let's go to the promised land, and enjoy a land flowing with milk and honey, okay? So that's the idea, and Moses, with God's help, leads the people out of um, Egypt and into the promised land. So free, what they should have done was run headlong into the promised land, celebrating and rejoicing God's great works, right? But did they? No, they took a detour, a 40-year detour. And I've got a map here. The, the, resolute, the, the, the color is pretty bad, so I'm just going to highlight some stuff for you. This is Egypt over here, okay? Mediterranean Sea right here. And this is the Sinai wilderness, okay? And so this is where they were in Egypt. And all of these lines that you see here, these are all their journeys for 40 years. So what they could have done is walk from Egypt across the promised land. There it is, right there. But instead what they did was they sinned, and they took a detour over here, and then they went back, and then they went down here, and then they went up here, and they tried to go to the promised land, but failed, and they came back, and they made a circle, and they stayed in what's called the wilderness of sin for roughly 40 years. This should have been a short journey for the people of God, but instead it turned into a 40-year journey because in the wilderness of sin, they sinned. They worshipped false gods. And God said, I'm really trying to refine for myself a people who are passionate about holiness, who love me with all of their heart, who want to be set apart and be a light to lead other people to me. But they're not acting like that, so I'm going to refine them even more before they get to the promised land. So they were refined in Egypt, and now in the promised land, God says, listen, um, because I want all of the people to worship me and be passionate about holiness, all of the people who have left Egypt, who were adults and who sinned in the wilderness, they're not going to get to be in the promised land. I'm not going to send them to the promised land. Their children will inherit the promised land. And so God was raising up for himself a whole new generation of people who would love him and be devoted to him. And then God led them to the Jordan River. And this is the Dead Sea right here. And the Jordan River comes out like a little wiry hair out of the top of the Dead Sea, okay? Right at the top of the map. And uh, they needed to cross the Jordan River to get into the Promised Land. Now, the Jordan River was overflowing with its banks. At this time of year, it was flood season. And there was these deep ravines that made um, a flooded river very dangerous because you didn't know if you put your foot down, was it going to be 300 feet of water or was it just going to be a couple feet of water? And the rapids were pretty bad. This was a very... Difficult river to navigate. And God uh, and, and uh, God said, I really want you people to go over there. So Joshua sent some spies. And they went over, right? And they met a girl named who? Rahab, right? And Rahab rescued them from being captured and said, listen, um, I'm scared to my neck of your God. Everything about your God is terrifying me. So I've rescued you. When your God takes our city, save me. That was the bargain. I'll save you now. I want your God to save me later, okay? That was the bargain that she made with the spies. So the spies went back to, to Joshua and said, listen, Joshua, this is really exciting. We met this prostitute. Don't ask us how. We met this prostitute, and she, it's, 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 you know, they casually met in the streets, okay? We met this prostitute, and, and she tells us that the whole city is scared to death of you, and they're scared of us because you're with us. And the city has been given into our hands. We need to go take the city, Joshua. It's 
time. Let's go do this. And so Joshua says, all right, um, let's go. Let's take our people and let's cross the Jordan River and we'll enter the promised land and we'll take Jericho because that was the city that they were about to take. Now, Moses, when they left Egypt, did what at the uh, river or the Red Sea? Right, staff in the middle. We've all seen the, the pictures of that. Now, Joshua is in charge of the people at this point, and they've got this flooded Jordan River that they have to cross. So what does Joshua do? Parts the Jordan River, okay? And they walk across on dry land into the Promised Land because God's like, well, i got to get over there somehow, okay? So he gets them into the Promised Land. He gets them to the gates of the Promised Land. But something was in their way from taking the Promised Land. They couldn't just waltz right in. They ran into something right away, and the river wasn't the problem. What they ran into after the river was the problem. It was the city of Jericho. Jericho was a double-walled fortress city. Um, so this is where we're going to pick up. I'm going to read verse 1. We're going to stop there, and we're going to talk about verse 1. So Joshua chapter 6, verse 1. The people ready to inherit the promise of God, ready to serve him, ready to worship him in this land, and this is the obstacle they run into. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. No one went in, and no one went out. And that's what they ran into. They crossed the river, and then they ran into this city. You can't even see it. It's like right up off the map, just barely off the map, okay? City of Jericho. Now, I want to show you Jericho today, okay? This is an aerial view of Jericho right here. So we've got a modern road that runs along Jericho on this side. Um, and then a modern road that kind of intersects on the other side. This is the forefront for Jericho. Um, and you're thinking, that doesn't look too bad. I could take that. Give me a few men. That's not so bad, right? So Jericho doesn't look too bad today. Um, based on archaeological evidence and things that have been studied in the many years that people have been studying Jericho, they have done a kind of an artist's rendering of what Jericho would look like right there. Okay? So there you go. There's uh, Jericho, right where it should be. It's a multi-layered city. It's got two walls. And I want to talk to you a little bit about this city so that you understand um, what the people of Israel saw with their eyes and were up against in terms of taking this city. This was fascinating to me. Um, Jericho was a city that was below sea level, if you can imagine that. Okay, So um, you, have, you have flat land and you've got the sea. But you've got this huge valley in the middle of the land, and that's where Jericho lies, in this valley. So it sits below sea level, and next to Jericho, we'll go back to each slide. Um, next to Jericho is the Dead Sea, and you've got the sea over here, so it's high, high, high in this little valley in the river valley. Okay, So um, if you are Jericho, and you are below sea level, surrounded by ocean, and seas and rivers that run with tides and these kinds of things. And on deep flood seasons, what are you going to worry about in your valley? Flooding. Right. So um, Jericho built some really great things to help themselves be defended against the, um, the world that they were up against here in this place. So I want to show you uh, a few more things. Jericho was below sea level. Here's another. Uh-oh. I think my battery died. We'll go to the next slide. Uh, this is another rendering of Jericho. Okay, it'll give you a little better perspective. This will be up for the majority of the rest of the sermon. Okay, this is Jericho from another perspective. Um, and hopefully, I still have my laser pointer. Oh, okay. Um, okay. So Jericho. Um, 
To accommodate seasonal flooding of the Jordan and the seas, uh, they built a trench all the way around the city. Okay? It's this massive trench. Imagine a moat, but with no water. Okay? It's just a dry trench. And it was sole purpose was to accumulate the water in case of flood. Okay? This trench is 27 feet across and 9 feet deep and chiseled out of bedrock. Now, we're familiar with that kind of territory, right? We understand rock. Um, I, I have pictures uh, in, in, in my research that I did for the sermon of the tools they used to hand chisel bedrock to get this trench. 27 feet across, 9 feet deep. Okay, This was the first barrier that Israel would have encountered. 27 feet across, 9 feet deep, this trench. Now, it goes beyond that. There's this retaining wall right here. Okay, uh, It's this lighter brown this retaining wall uh, was literally retaining the city and protecting it from flood. It was six feet thick, okay? six feet thick, made out of chiseled bricks, and it's 12 to 17 feet tall. 12 to 17 feet tall, made out of chiseled bricks, a retaining wall that holds this sloped uh, second tier of the city in. Okay? Um, now, on top of the 12 to 17 foot retaining wall is this darker brown wall made out of mud bricks. Okay. Residences were built into this portion of the wall, and this portion of the wall added an extra 8 to 10 feet on top of the 12 to 17 foot retaining wall, meaning that if you were standing at the bottom of the 9 foot trench and looking up, you were facing a vertical wall of roughly 25 or 27 to 35 feet. That's the equivalent of a 3 to 4 story building today. So go down to the docks, okay, um, where all of the, the building you were in. Four stories, five stories? Four stories? Okay. Um, so uh, right next to Annabelle's, those buildings right there, just go stand right at the base of them and look all the way up. And imagine you are in ancient Israel and you don't have an elevator or stairs <laughs> or any way to access that building. That is what you are looking at, a 37-foot-tall structure. And God says, and the city's yours. And you're like, I don't know how. Uh, because that's a pretty intense uh, retaining wall. Um, so homes were built into that top portion, the mud brick portion, and that's where we believe that uh, Rahab's house was, because in Scripture it tells us that she let them down out of the window and they escaped out of the city. The only way that would be possible is if she had a room with a view on the outside, okay? Um, and, and as we've learned in excavating, not me, but the people who are smart to do the excavating, they learned that this outer portion of the city was kind of the slums, okay? And the inner portion of the city, inside the second protective wall, that was where all the, the, the wealthy lived, okay? So um, uh, you had the, the wealthy folks and then the, the slum folks, uh, for lack of a better term. And then I guess the prostitutes lived in the walls, or at least that's where Rahab lived, okay? And that's why she was allowed to uh, get the folks out the door. Now, this upper wall, this second wall around the, the wealthier folks of the city, um, it was the main gate and it was the main city. This was roughly seven feet wide, so seven feet across, uh, deep of a wall. It's a significant wall. And, uh, and beyond that, it was 12 feet tall. So you've got a 37-foot roughly tall view here. And then once you get over that, you have this hill to climb, scattered with homes, and another 12-foot-tall wall to get into the city. This is a double-walled fortress city. Israel has never encountered a city like this before. 
They've never seen this kind of defense mechanism. This city is fortified, impenetrable, and it has a very strong army. And in its defense, the scripture told us, it shut its gates. No one was going in and no one was going out because of the fear of the people of Israel and their God. In fact, this was a really common battle tactic. You would see in old cities called sieging a city. Um, a warrior nation would come up around a city and surround it, and they wouldn't let the city go in or out. So basically, whatever food and resources and water the city had in its doors would run out eventually, and either the city would surrender because they're about to starve to death, or they would starve to death, and the city would be taken over anyway. That was how it worked in common battle tactics. So they would be surrounded, and, said, and it would take months for this to occur. But we know from scriptures, we'll read today, this battle was won in seven days. So surely God was with them. Okay, let me read verses 2 through 5 and 17 through 19. And I'm bringing it up this way because this passage um, gives instructions and then what actually happens based on the instructions. So we're going to read the instruction portions and then we're going to read the action portions. I think that made sense to me in my brain. Verses 2 through 5 read this way. And then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I've given you Jericho into your hand. I just imagine for a moment. You're standing at the base of the 37-foot rock wall, and you're looking up, and then you're Joshua, and God says, Look, I've given you the city. And, and that just, your eyes are seeing one thing, and your heart's uh, having to trust another. I've given the city to Jericho to you into your hand with its king and its mighty men of valor. You're going to march around the city. All the men of war going around the city once, and you should do that for six days. Then seven priests will bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Covenant. And on the seventh day, you will march around the city seven times, and the priests will blow the trumpets. And when they make one long blast with the ram's horns, when you hear the sound of that trumpet, all the people are going to shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and then everyone is going to go straight up into the city in front of them. So that's the first portion of the instruction. And the second portion of the instruction is 17 through 19, and it reads this way. And the city and all that is within it will be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house will live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourself from things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make it a camp of Israel a thing devoted for destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver, all the gold, every vessel of bronze and iron will go to the Lord and they will go into the treasury. And so these are the instructions that the Lord has given Joshua for the battle. This is how you're going to take the city. God declares the victory before they even begin. God says the city's yours. So the victory is already theirs. They just need to enact the steps that will occur the victory. In our Sunday school class today, we talked about faith Right? And how it's one thing to have faith, but it's another thing to do works in your faith. You aren't saved because of your works, but your faith produces good works. This is a really good example of that. These people needed to trust God and then act out of that trust to receive the fullness of the city. It was a beautiful thing that they were about to experience. It didn't matter how strong or how impenetrable this city looked. God had been refining the people to implicitly trust him, regardless what their eyes saw. Because their eyes were seeing a 37-foot tall wall, 
and then a large city, and then another 12 to 15 foot tall wall. That's what their eyes saw. But their heart, in faith, having been refined, said, God said we have a victory, therefore, evidently, we have the victory. We just need to wait for God to give us the victory, and then we'll take the victory, because the victory is ours, God said so. That's kind of how it boils down. The city would fall, and here's how Joshua told it would go down. You will walk, and you will worship, and that is how the victory will be won. You will walk, and you will worship. All you need to do is walk around the city with an armored guard in the Ark of the Covenant and some priests. Do it once a day for six days, and then, uh, and then on the seventh day, do it seven times, and then the walls will fall, and you will go in, and you will take the city. Um, so um, when they fell, I, I wondered about this. I was like, if the walls fall, that's a lot of rock. I mean, like, I was, like, logistically, I'm thinking through this when I read these stories. I try and put myself in their feet, in their shoes. What would I see? What would I smell? And I think 37 feet tall, 6 feet wide, that's a lot of rock to fall. And what, what um, archaeologists have discovered as they've excavated this area is the rock fell and um, almost like it was pushed outward in a way. And so it created this like sloping hill of rock they could climb right up and go directly into the city. So I think that's kind of cool. Um, so maybe it filled in the trench a little bit and allowed them easy access right up into the city. Um, and then they would go right up into the city and take everything by sword. Their job, according to God, in this holy victory was to take the weapons they had and to go into that city when the walls fell and kill every man, woman, child, sheep, goat, cow, bird, dog, duck, dove. If it lived, if it breathed, you killed it. Then set the city on fire. Then anything that didn't burn, like the gold and the bronze and the silver and so forth, would get put into the treasury because it had been refined through fire and it goes to be holy to the Lord. Now, they will take other cities in the process of taking the promised land fully under God's promise, but this is the only city they completely laid to waste and destroy. All the other cities, God says, you can take spoils from the city. But not this city. Why? It's the first city. The first thing belongs to God. Completely and wholly devoted to God. It's the tithe to God. It's the tithe city, if you will. You give it fully over to God. Don't touch anything that doesn't belong to you. Kill it. Burn it. Put the gold in the treasury house for the Lord. That's how it was to go down. The only ones permitted to live, according to the instructions, would be Rahab and her family, for her demonstration of faith saved her. She demonstrated a great faith in this God that she had never met. Because of the testimony of the things she had heard, she said, I believe that this city will fall, and when it does, I would like to be saved. And so God said her faith has saved her. She will be saved. Don't kill her or her family. Now, um, verses 16, or 6 through 16 and 20 through 25, how the battle goes down. 6 through 16. So Joshua, son of Nun, poor guy, didn't have any parents, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And then he said to the people, Go forward and march around the city and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. So we've got this kind of, just picture, it's kind of like a parade, and you've got some armed guard, and then you've got the trumpets, the priests, 
And you've got the Ark of the Covenant and another armed guard. And that's who's going to be marching around the city. And as Joshua commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of the ram's horns before the Lord went forth, blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests, and the rear guard was walking after the Ark, while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, you will not shout. You will not make your voice heard. Neither any word shall go out from your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. I, it kind of gives you the idea that they're not talking at all for these seven days. Um, like it's not just while they're walking around. No sound shall go out from your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Would you be silent for seven days? That would be really difficult. Okay? Especially as you're trying to wage a battle. Like, you know, hey, we're in war, folks. Talk. Um, but that's that's exactly what's going on here. And then when I give the word, you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once, and they came into camp and spent the night in camp. Then Joshua rose early the next morning, and the priests took out the ark of the Lord, and the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before, and the rear guard was walking behind. And the trumpets blew continually, and the second day they marched around the city once. And they returned to camp, and they did so for six days. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn, and they marched around the city in the same manner seven times. And it was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you this city. And now we're going to read verses 20 and so the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the walls fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him. And they captured the city, and they devoted all in that city to destruction, men, women, young, old, oxen, sheep, donkeys, all with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go to the prostitute's house and bring her out from there, the woman and all who belong to her, as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all who belonged to her, and they brought them all out and put them outside the camp. And then they burned the city with fire and everything in it, and only the silver and the gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put in the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive, and she had lived in Israel to this day, because she did the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. This is such a unique story. Um, okay, so, we got the instructions, and then it seems like the story tells itself multiple times over. In Old Testament story practicing, uh, telling, they didn't have, like, a book, like, they couldn't go to the bookstore and buy a Bible, and so when they told stories about things that had happened, they would say, and here's what they said, and here's what they did, and here's a little more detail about it, and here's a little more detail about it. So if you look at the story of Adam and Eve and the creation, you get God created Adam and Eve in his image, and then you turn the page to the next chapter and you get the details of that, right? So you get the short version and then the long version. That's what's happening here. You get the details, and then you get the, the bigger side of the story. And so here's what happened as they took the city. The people did exactly what Joshua told them to do according to... To the land. For six days they rose early. For six days they rose early, and part of the men of fighting age, because the people that would walk around the city were the men of fighting age. 
So part of the men of fighting age would be the first guard that would go out front, right? And they would stand there. And then the priests with the horns would stand behind them. And then behind the priests with the horns would be the Ark of the Covenant. Don't touch it, just hold it by its poles. Okay? And then behind the Ark of the Covenant, remember the Ark of the Covenant symbolized God's actual Shekinah glory presence in the real world tangible sense to the people. And then behind the Ark of the Covenant was the rear guard, the rest of the men of fighting age in Israel. And they would rise early and they would walk silently around the city. Just silently around the city. The only thing that would be heard were footsteps and horn blasts. Horn blasts from the priests. Now, um, Shofars, that's what it's called, the, the Old Testament horn, whether it's a ram's horn or this is a, a kudu, horn from the kudu. Um, both are valid shofars, um, and they were the trumpets. They were used for worship and uh, calls to battle and all kinds of uh, significant practices in terms of worshiping God. Shofar calls were standard, though. So there was a certain sound that would be associated with a certain type of practice or time of um repentance or uh, a call to battle. So there would be a call for worship, and it would sound like one long blast. There would be a call for repentance, and it would sound like three blasts. There would be a call for battle, and it would be nine staccato notes. And then there would be a call of victory, and it would be a blast that would be as long as the person had breath in them. And it was supposed to increase in volume, signifying, hey, we've got the victory. And so people all over Israel, familiar with the worship practices, would know what certain sounds on the horn meant. This becomes important later on. So um, the priests would have wandered around the city following um, a certain kind of shofar pattern. First, uh, they, would, um, they would blow a long blast, which was for worship, because they were supposed to worship God as they were going out. So bear with me. I'm not a trumpet player, but I'm going to give this a try. <laughs> <laughs> and they would do much better than me, right? Okay. Um, so they'd get one blast. There's a tone in there somewhere. Okay? And then they would do it with nine staccato blasts. So the one blast is worship, and the nine staccatos is uh, uh, battle. Okay? So it's a call to battle. Something like that. Okay? And, uh, and they would do it far better and far louder than me. And Shelly, you're giving me that. That's, I saw the look of a trumpet player who said, I could do that better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Try it. Give, <laughs> Give it a try. States, okay? 
So this was relatively okay terrain, maybe 15, 20 minutes to walk around, six days of this. Now what's interesting is the amount of people in Israel, great number, right? Because God promised them sand of the ground and stars of the sky. Um, and if you take only the fighting men and the priests and the arts, you've got the rear and front guard, they would leave camp and they would start the processional and the people who started the processional would get back to camp before the last part of the line would be leaving camp. Um, that's how many people would be walking around the, the, uh, the city. Uh, which is interesting when you get to the seventh day. Um, because on the seventh day, they circle around at seven times, right? Um, and so you have this snake that is roping itself tighter and tighter around the city of Jericho. And you hear one long blast and nine staccato blasts. And one long blast and nine staccato blasts. And one long blast and nine staccato blasts. And you can hear it anywhere in the, the God-made creation when they are blowing um, successfully. And so now, the people of Israel would have heard worship, battle. Worship, battle, worship, battle, over and over and over again. And the poor people in Jericho, they don't know what this means. They just think there's some crazy people walking around blowing the horns. But they would become accustomed to the rhythm over time, right? One long blast, nice blast. One long blast, nice blast. One long blast. They don't know what it means. They just know that's what they hear. Until the seventh day and the last time around when the priests were commanded to blast a long blast. The long blast, as long as your breath would hold out. The victory call that says, we've got the one long blast for worship, we've got the nine staccato blast for battle, and now we're going to claim victory. So blast your horns as loud and as long as you can, increase in volume. <laughs> yeah, go Where for shall it. I go? Victory! <laughs> Seven. 
seven feet deep fall down around your house, which is part of that wall, and you are going, am I going to survive this? Is this going to work? And you are still standing when those walls are not. And then the two people, the only two familiar faces that you have in connection with this God and this kind of weird thing that just happened, come back and say, our God has saved you in the city dark. Come with us. That personal kind of touch, that's super cool. I never noticed that before this week. Um, and I, I don't know what significance that has other than, and it was just personal. I think God works in that way. He works in the personal touch. So um, the fast fact about Rahab, I want to give you some information. Rahab was a pagan prostitute, right? Lived in a pagan city, gave her uh, heart to God because she didn't want to be destroyed and she had faith in God. She um, was purified outside of the camp for seven days following ritual purification processes so that she could become part of Israel and not profane uh, the city, uh, the nation of Israel. She, uh, she um, was purified and brought in and became part of the nation of Israel. And then she married a man named Salmon. Great name, right? A guy named Salmon, and they had a son. You guys know who the son was? Boaz. Now that's fascinating, because we just finished studying the book of Ruth, right? So, Rahab the prostitute trusted God, was saved, became part of Israel, married Salmon. They had a boy. The boy's name was Boaz. Boaz grew up to be a righteous man who had the opportunity to redeem a pagan girl named Ruth who was a widow. And then we know from the story of Ruth that Ruth and Boaz had a kid named Obed, and Obed had a kid and named Jesse, and Jesse had a kid named David. And so who is directly related to King David? Man. Well, Jesus, yeah. <laughs> so this will answer. Yeah, Jesus on one end, Rahab on the other end. And we've got this beautiful picture about Rahab, the pagan prostitute, the great-grandmother of King David, and a direct relative of Jesus, our Savior. And it's this beautiful idea that God redeems all people who come to him in faith, no matter what life you've lived, no matter where you've been walled up, no matter the kinds of things that you've saw, seen or done, you give your heart to Christ and he will personally send rescue for you. And I think that that is very cool. And that story is how the homeless children of God inherited the promised land that God had said, I want you to have from the beginning of time. God simply gave them the victory. That's all it took. I give you the victory. And all they had to do was walk in that victory. All they had to do was walk. They had to proclaim the victory with the horns, wait patiently for the victory, wait silently for the victory, and then trust God to work it out for his glory and their good. The victory was theirs by the power of God, but they had work that needed to be done. This is a twofold kind of equation, right? God gave the victory, but what did the people need to do? Yeah, they needed to take it. They needed to murder some people in the name of God. That sounds a little weird. Can I phrase it like that? Because that's exactly what it says in Scripture. By the sword, take the life of everyone that's in there. God gave them the victory, but they needed to be obedient and walk in that victory. They needed to trust that God was going to give them the victory, and when the walls fell down, they had to go in and clean house. Because God said, I want a nation that's fully devoted to me. And there are things within that walled city that are going to distract you from me, that are going to cause you to worship other gods, that are going to cause you to marry into pagan families. I don't want that for you. You need to destroy everyone who is going to lead you astray, every 
idol that is going to lead you astray. Kill it, burn it, leave it for nothing. Leave it for waste. So there was one thing left to be done. This is the closing two, two verses. It's not enough that you would kill everyone in the city and burn it to the ground. One more thing had to be done so that God knew his people would um, never do again what Jericho represented. 26 and 27. Joshua laid an oath on the people at this time saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn, he will lay its foundation. And at the cost of his youngest son, he will set up its gates. And so the Lord was with Joshua, and fame was in, his fame was in all the land. But here's the idea. They torched the city, and it's God's way of saying, completely waste it, and never, ever, ever return to those behaviors, mindsets, worship practices, idolatry, never again. If you rebuild the city, it's going to cost you your firstborn son and your youngest son. Because the minute you start to rebuild, you're disobeying me. God was very, very serious. Do not rebuild the walls of sin in the promised land. Do not build a fortress that you can call yourself safe and secure in, apart from God, in the promised land. Don't erect a fortress against God. Don't establish false gods. Don't trust in your walls or your eyes. Trust in God. The way you live speaks volumes about the God you claim to serve to other nations and to other people. This is what God wants to say. Listen, you are a called people, a redeemed people, a holy people. If you go back to these ways, the rest of the promised land, you're not going to be any different than that. You have an opportunity to share my glory and fame with other people. And if you look like other people, you can't do that. God says, don't ever do that again. Now, um, God wanted the people to fight for holiness in their heart and in their life, right? Um, and so he said, never return to these pagan ways that you have struggled with for generations upon generations. Now, I got curious because I'm a, uh, I just get curious about scripture. And so when I read something like, so specific, don't rebuild. It will cost you your firstborn when you lay its foundation, and it will cost you your youngest son when you lay its gates. I thought, I wonder if that ever happened. And so I went digging. And lo and behold, guess what? It did exactly like this. In 1 Kings 16.34, it tells us what happened when someone rebuilt the wall. And it's very specific. Because the curse is very specific. Um, it says... A man named Hiel rebuilt the walls of Jericho, and he laid the foundation at the cost of Abram, his firstborn son. And he set up the gates of the city at the cost of Segub, his youngest son. They named the sons. This is a very specific, God's not joking kind of thing. He's saying, do not go back to the pagan ways which I have leveled before you. Never return to those things. I'm going to make good on this curse, and he did later. And what we need to recognize about this story and about our lives is that perhaps our lives are not much different than this story. Okay. Um, we are a people who have been lost in sin. Anyone give an amen to that? Okay. 
aimlessly wandering in a wilderness, lacking a spiritual home of substance, and then God leads you to the promised land and um, to salvation through faith in Christ, and God has given you the greatest victory over sin and death, which is sin's uh, curse. You're no longer enslaved to the things of the flesh that have struggled with um, in your life because Scripture says in John 8, if the Son has set you free, then you are free indeed, right? That's right. So praise be to God, says 1 Corinthians, who gives us the victory through Christ Jesus. We have victory in Jesus, which is exactly the song we sang earlier today. Now the Israelites had many battles against many other pagan cities and nations and practices before the promised land would be more subdued to God's holiness and Yahweh. It's, um, it's like this. When you have two warring nations and a king takes over the weaker nation, well, it becomes that new king's territory, right? Sure. But does everybody within that new territory always want to follow the new king? No. no. There are small groups and cells and pockets and factions that need to be sorted out in the process. It was like that in the promised land, and it's like that in the land of our hearts. Though we give our lives to Christ when we are saved, there are pockets of resistance in our life that still need to be dealt with so that we can be a holy people before God. Though we are saved from sin and death sting by Christ, we do have many battles to wage before the land of our heart and life is fully submitted to Jesus in holiness. Um, the thing is, we grow lazy. We allow ourselves to build walls around our hearts, saying God doesn't care about this particular thing, or it's okay if I do this, because God and I have an understanding, and I'm allowed to do, you can't do this, but I can do this, because God and I have an understanding. I'll judge you if you do what I'm doing, but God and me, we're good, and so we build up these walls around our hearts and around our lives, and we harden our heart that way to God's voice and his call, and um, remembering that oath, that God spoke to uh, Joshua. Joshua had the people do about, um, don't rebuild the city or it's going to cost you your, your son. God was serious about that. We saw in 1 Kings. Um, but if we're honest, we've rebuilt walls too, right? Even though we've been saved through faith in Christ, we've rebuilt walls. And we've allowed them to take strongholds in our heart. And um, we, we lay sinful things down for a time. But sometimes their appeal is so great that we pick them back up again and embrace them and we build that wall. And God is gracious and loving to sinners who rebuild walls around their hearts. Um, God said the cost of the wall is the death of the son, right? And um, if his people rebuild, then the son must die. And if that's the curse of rebuilding the walls of sin, then who must bear the curse? God said... I love my people far too much to allow them to bear this curse. So I will send my first son, my only son, my begotten son, my Jesus, to bear the curse of sin on himself because we rebuilt the walls and someone needed to die for that. Jesus came. He bared the weight of the curse on himself and he said this, I will send my only son to be slain on the cross so that my lost children with hard-walled hearts can be purified and made holy and preserved and blameless. Because we know what John 3.16 says. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him shall not perish 
but have everlasting life. That means if we, like Rahab, live in a walled city and we trust God, he will save us, personally rescue us from the curse and lead us into the promised land, not just into the promised land to say, hey, now we're here, but to, to create in our hearts something that is far better than we would have on our own. First John tells us this. We know that the Son of God has come, and he is true. He is the real living God, and he is eternal life to us. Keep away from anything that might take God's place in your heart. That's scripture. That's not me. That's scripture. Let's hit the next slide for me, Lee Dennis. Amen. Okay. Um, Christ's followers have no business participating in anything that is contrary to a life of holiness. If it endangers your worship and relationship with God, put it down and walk away. Okay? That's what it means when we are not to rebuild the walls. Christ followers, people who have claimed Christ in their hearts and lives for salvation, have no business, no business participating in any, un, un, in any unholy behavior. Scripture is very clear. I phrase it this way. Put it down and walk away. Scripture says, put it to the sword. Kill it so that it can't come back and get you. Scripture says, kill it. It says, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on those things, not on the things that are of earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. So when Christ, who is your life, appears... And you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, the things that are sinful. This is scripture, not me. Put to death the things that are sinful. Kill it, walk away, and never look back. The author of Hebrews, <laughs> from my Sunday school class, I chuckled that one. The author of Hebrews says, choose today not to harden your hearts. He says it over and over again. And over again, because why? We get lazy and we harden our hearts and we rebuild the walls. And so over and over again, he says, choose today not to harden your hearts. Listen to the word of God. Let him work in you. Choose to lay to waste anything that is contrary to Christ in your life so that you may begin to live a life to the fullest that is fully devoted to Christ as a fully devoted Christ follower. So I want to ask you one question and one question alone this morning. What is it in your life that needs to be destroyed and never returned to? What is it in your life that needs to be destroyed and never returned to? Some of you have that big ticket item. Some of you have a list of many items. It doesn't really matter how big the item is or how long the list is. The walls of Jericho came down because God gave the victory. And the walls of So what is it that hinders your worship? What is it that is a stumbling block between you and Christ? And are you willing to say that addiction, that fear, that security in money, or that security in relationships, the laziness that I have, the struggle with pornography, the pride, the jealousy, the insert, whatever it is that you have on your list, are you willing to, with Christ saying, I will give you the victory, are you willing to say, I will kill it and walk away? And I trust that God will work that out in my heart and mind and soul and enable me to run up over those walls.
and capable of holiness the way he's designed me to be. Scripture is very clear. Christ has purchased the victory with his life. So therefore, are you willing to walk in holiness with him today? To free yourself from those things that you have been entangled with because the walls are down and all we need to do is walk in and take it and victory is ours. As we worship, may those be the thoughts that are running around in your mind. The things that you need to slay with Christ's help to become a holy people set apart for him, able to be a light in a dark place and never, ever return to the things that endanger you. Father, we are ever thankful that you are bigger than us. There is no wall that is too large for you to have. There is no sin that is too great we can't forgive. I mean, Jesus' own family became prostitutes pagan widows and horrible kings did terrible things and average everyday Joes and some good people too were holy and righteous and sought you. And then there were those holy righteous people who sought you but did some horrible things and all of those people have been redeemed by Christ. No wall is too great. Your sin is too big. Lord, you can make us holy we want to be. And this morning, we worship you, and as we pray, you create in us holy hearts, holy minds, something that is cleaner than it was when we came in. Cleanse us from the inside out this morning with your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, I can speak directly to you because you're God. Um, Holy Spirit, you have permission to do what you want with my life at this moment. I don't know about anybody else in the room. I'm just going to speak on behalf of myself. You can do what you want with my heart because you know there's a list of things and a way that I've walled myself in. And I don't want to live like that anymore. I can't do it without you. You said the victory is already in our hands. And I believe it, Father. 